you're listening to Radio Maria. This is Credo, and today I'm very happy to introduce you to Sister Magdalene Eitenmiller, who is one of the Dominican sisters of St. Catherine of Siena. And Sister Magdalene is going to be talking. Her topic this evening is, And the Word Was Made Flesh, a Thomistic Look at the Incarnation. Hello, Sister Magdalene. Thank you for being Hello, here. Hello, Tia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it, I'm absolutely grateful and privileged to have you here to talk about this and uh, very excited as well and uh, to learn more. So great. I'm very happy <laughs> to just hand you hand the microphone over to you. <laughs> okay, wonderful. I'll just begin with a little prayer, uh, a part of a longer prayer written by St. Thomas Aquinas called the Concheri Miki. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grant to me, O merciful God, that I may ardently desire, prudently seek, truly recognize, and perfectly accomplish whatever is pleasing to you, to the praise and glory of your name. Order my life, my God, and grant that I may know what you require of me to do, and to carry it out as I should, and as is expedient for my soul. Amen. Amen. St. John begins his gospel with the mysterious sentence, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. After telling us that all things were made through this Word, and that this Word was light and life, he proclaims in verse 14 the good news that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. It is from the fullness of his grace that we have received grace upon grace. No one has ever seen God, says John, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has revealed him to us. So it is this mystery in which the Word, who is God the Son, took on our human nature and came into time in order to live among us, grant us grace, and reveal the Father to us. It is this mystery that we call the Incarnation. So we might ask ourselves these four questions, and you have this if you have a handout there on the sheet. Who is this Word of God? who became flesh? Why did he become flesh? How can we rightly understand the fact that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us? And finally, how does the fact that the Word became flesh really affect us anyway? Although every mystery of faith is by definition something revealed to us by God, precisely because we cannot attain to it by human reason alone. Yet at the same time, because God has revealed at least some aspects of this mystery, we are called to reason about it with the help of God, in order to grasp it more profoundly, insofar as that is possible to us. This is what St. Anselm calls fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding, in which we begin with what we already hold to be true by faith, 
and we seek to understand it more deeply by using our human reason as healed and elevated by grace. So let us begin then with our first question. Who is this Word made flesh who dwelt among us? Well, of course, this verse refers to Jesus Christ, the pre-existent Son or Word of the Father. That is, He is a divine person who has two natures. First, an eternally divine nature, which is identical with His personhood, since in God, being and essence are the same. So just as the Father is the divine essence or nature, the Son and the Spirit are also the same divine essence or nature. And secondly, God the Son has also assumed or taken on in time a human nature like ours in all things but sin. So he has both a divine nature and a human nature. So these are the two central mysteries of our faith that are deeply connected. The first is the mystery of the Trinity, which is the ontological basis that is the foundation in reality, in real being, of the mystery of the Incarnation. In fact, without the Trinity, there would be no Incarnation, no one to become incarnate. Yet the mystery of the Incarnation is the way we come to know about the Trinity, or in technical terms, it is the epistemological basis of the Christian faith, since it is Christ himself who reveals to us the inner nature of God. As Aquinas says, we can naturally know from the effects of God that he exists, but what he is in himself or in his inner nature or essence is not subject to merely natural knowledge. That is why we need revelation. Now, there are some things we can come to know about God by a natural process of reason, such as that God is good, all-powerful, wise, and so on. But even these things only speak generically of the divine essence. That then what is more, it is only an analogy by a way of analogy that we can know things about God. For example, that God is good, um, but we always fail to grasp that his goodness is far beyond the goodness of any creature and far beyond what the mind can comprehend. Nevertheless, this natural knowledge does tell us something positive about God. But the fact that God is triune, that he is a trinity of persons, is known to us only by the revelation that comes to us through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and cannot be known by natural reason alone. Although I do not have time here to go deeply into Trinitarian theology, it may be helpful to understand a little bit more about this analogy of the Word, since it is a proper analogy revealed to us in Scripture in the Gospel of John, as a way of helping our limited human capacity reason about these two central mysteries of our faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. So what is this analogy of the Word? Aquinas follows St. Augustine in this, who, because Scripture has revealed that we have been made in God's image, 
tries then to express this scriptural revelation in the Gospel of John concerning the Word by way of what is known as the psychological analogy, that is, an analogy based on the human soul that has been, been made in God's image. So this analogy is not an arbitrary one. So here is the analogy, which is actually an analogy of word and love. Just as the human mind or soul knows itself by way of intellect, such as I can form an intellectual interior concept of myself, so the human mind also loves itself and others through its will. That involves a kind of movement or impulse toward what is loved. In an analogous way, we can think of God the Father eternally knowing himself, forming an interior word or concept which in God would include his entire being, power, goodness, all that God is, since God is simple and not divided in his thoughts. So this word, eternally generated by the Father, is the Son of God, a distinct person of the Trinity, equal to and one in being with the Father, one divine essence or nature, yet distinct from the Father only by the fact of a, having a real relation to the Father from which from the, whom the Son eternally proceeds. And similarly, the Father and Son, in loving one another, eternally spirate or breathe forth, spiratio in Latin, God the Holy Spirit, who is also one in being and divine nature, equal to the Father and the Son. So this eternal, interior word spoken by the Father entered into time by assuming our human nature in a way analogous to the manner in which our interior human word or concept becomes an external spoken word when clothed with human sound or voice. That is to say, God the Father sent his Son in what is called the visible mission of the Incarnation. It is called his visible mission because he continues even now to be sent to us in his invisible mission, together with the Holy Spirit, who comes into each soul in the state of grace. Now, if you have the handout there that, that is on the Radio Maria website, you will see in point one, a description of the divine missions according to Aquinas. A divine mission is the eternal procession of the Son or of the Holy Spirit with the addition of a created effect. And the visible mission, then, has a visible created effect, as in the incarnation, when God takes on creating a human nature that he unites to himself, or we see also in Scripture the temporary, visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit, such as coming in the form of a dove at Christ's baptism, or the cloud at the Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor, or the tongues of fire at Pentecost. And then there are also the invisible missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit that have an invisible created effect as in the grace and gifts the divine persons bring to the soul. These invisible missions, then, have two aspects. One is uncreated, which is the divine person himself, who is sent to the soul in grace, 
and where one divine person is, all three are present, so God the Father is also present in the soul in grace. The second aspect of the invisible mission has to do with the created effect that the divine persons leave in the soul, that are the gifts of wisdom and love, conforming us to themselves, making us like them in a deeper way. But let us return to the topic of the Incarnation. This assumption of our human nature to the divine person of God the Son is technically termed the hypostatic union, which is a uniting of two natures, human and divine, to the one person. The hypostasis is a Greek word that means the subject. So it is united, they are, the divine nature and human nature are united to the divine person of Jesus Christ. And his divine nature is identical with his divine person, and the human nature is created and assumed to his divine person. For this reason, it's called the hypostatic union. However, lest anyone might erroneously think that the hypostatic union should require any change in God himself, Aquinas adds that the mystery of the Incarnation was not completed through God being changed in any way from the state in which he had been from eternity, but rather through his being unite, having united to himself to the creature in a new way, or rather having united it, the creature, to himself. So the change is in the creature, not in God, a new relation in the creature. Now there are three modes of divine presence in the world. The first mode of divine presence is the fact that God is present in all things as the creator of all, sustaining everything in existence. This is the common mode of divine presence according to Aquinas. The second mode is God's presence in our soul in a special way by the grace and gifts of the divine missions, the special mode of his divine presence. And then finally, there's this third mode, which is the hypostatic union, and this is unique to Christ alone. So Christ's human nature, that is a creature, began to be because it was created by God, although all three divine persons act as one in creating the, his human nature, but it is united only to one divine person, God the Son. Since God is the creator of all, it was not difficult for him to create a human nature for himself and bridge the gap, as it were, by uniting this human nature to his divine person. Because although God is really distinct from his, his creatures, there is no actual gap between them, because it is God himself who gives creatures their very being. So again, this incarnation of Christ does not in any way detract from God's own transcendence and infinitude, since he loses nothing of this in assuming even the frail body of an infant. For God is pure spirit and is not contracted or depleted by the hypostatic union, that uniting of the human nature to the divine person of God the Son. So this is the answer to our first question. Who is this Word of God who became flesh? Now, after a short break, we will turn to answer our second question. Why did God become incarnate? Thank you very much, Sister Madeline. Our first song this evening is 
by the One Voice Children's Choir, and it's Mary Did You Know, one of my favourites. Did you know that your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you is Credo on Radio Maria and we have Sister Magdalene Eitenmiller who is one of the Dominican sisters of St. Catherine of Siena who is talking about the uh, the incarnation the word was made flesh a Thomistic look at the incarnation so uh, thank you very much Sister Magdalene back over to you all right thank you Lucia all right so we have discussed who the Word is who became flesh, that He is God the Son, who is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the one divine nature, and 
who assumes a created human nature to himself. But now let us turn to the second question, which is why? Why did God become man or incarnate? Now Aquinas points out that such things as spring from God's will and are beyond the creature's due can be made known to us only through being revealed in sacred scripture in which the divine will is made known to us. Hence, since everywhere in sacred scripture, the sin of the first man is assigned as the reason for the incarnation, it is more in accordance with revelation to say that the work of the incarnation was ordained by God as a remedy for sin. So that had sin not existed, the incarnation would not have been. And yet, the power of God is not limited to this. Even had sin not existed, God could have become incarnate. Here, St. Thomas is saying that since Scripture makes it clear that God became incarnate in order to save us from sin, this appears to be at least the main reason for the incarnation. One of the places where Scripture at least indicates this reason why God became incarnate is John 3.16 that says, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son that whosoever might believe in him may not perish, that is, in sin, but may have life everlasting. And also St. Paul's first letter to Timothy clearly states that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, from 1 Timothy 1.15. So, we are all conceived in original sin due to the sin of our first parents, other than the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, this uh, has caused a wounding of our human nature and a loss of grace. Christ came to restore grace to us, so that our nature might be healed of the effects of sin and elevated in the life of grace, in order that we might, by God's initiative and grace moving us, be led back to him and be brought to the life of glory in the vision of God. On the other hand, Aquinas also notes that God could have saved us in some other way, since he is omnipotent. But this way seemed most fitting both with respect to furthering us in the good, as well as with respect to withdrawing us from evil. Now Aquinas lists five ways, and there are certainly other ways as well, in which the incarnation serves to further us or, or promote us in the good, helping us to grow in the good. And these are, as he says, first, with regard to faith, that is made more certain by believing God himself who speaks. Hence, St. Augustine says, in order that man might journey more trustfully toward the truth, the truth itself, the Son of God, having assumed human nature, established and founded faith. Secondly, with regard to hope, which by the incarnation is greatly strengthened. Hence, Aquinas cites Augustine again, Nothing was so necessary for raising our hope as to show us how deeply God loved us. And what could afford us a stronger proof of this than that the Son of God should become a sharer in our human nature? Third, 
With regard to charity, uh, that is, the supernatural love of God that is greatly enkindled by this fact that God became incarnate. Hence, Augustine says, What greater cause is there of the Lord's coming than to show God's love for us? And he adds, If we have been slow to love, at least let us hasten to love in return. Now, in addition to growth in these theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity or love, Aquinas continues with two other reasons why the incarnation is fitting or or suitable, appropriate, that God should become man. Fourthly, he says, with regard to well-doing, in which Christ set us an example. Hence, Augustine says, Man who might be seen was not to be followed, because man had sinned. But God was to be followed, who could not be seen, because God is pure spirit. And therefore, God was made man, that he who might be seen by man, and that whom man might follow, might be shown to man. In other words, God became man so as to give us an example of how to live, that we might follow him, and also that he would give us the grace to be transformed and follow him. Fifthly, then, with regard to the full participation of the divinity, which is the true bliss or beatitude of human beings and the end or goal of human life. And this is bestowed upon us by Christ's humanity. For Augustine says in a sermon, God was made man that man might be made God. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he means simply that human beings might be made like God. We don't become God, but we become divinized by grace. So the fourth reason that we mentioned refers to our call to imitate Christ in offering loving service to one another. And the final one refers to what is called deification, in which human beings are made like God, sanctified, divinized by his grace and gifts, both in this life, and then it reaches its completion and fulfillment in heaven. But St. Thomas also gives five ways in which the Incarnation serves to withdraw us from evil. First, he explains, because human beings are taught by it not to prefer the devil to himself, nor to honor him who is the author of sin. Secondly, because we are taught thereby How great is man's dignity, lest we should sully it with sin. Hence Augustine says, God has proved to us how high a place human nature holds amongst creatures, inasmuch as he appeared to men as a true man. And Pope Leo the Great says in a sermon on the Nativity, Learn, O Christian, thy worth and being made a partner of the divine nature, refuse to return by evil deeds to your former worthlessness, that is, in sin. Thirdly, then, the incarnation helps to withdraw us from evil, because, Aquinas says, in order to do away with man's presumption, the grace of God is commended in Jesus Christ, 
though no merits of ours went before. In other words, grace is purely a gift from God. We cannot merit that gift, so we ought not to be presumptuous of it, although we can and must cooperate with it. Fourthly, because man's pride, which is the greatest stumbling block to our clinging to God, can be convinced and cured by a humility so great that God should deign to become man, as Augustine also says. And then fifth, in order to free man from the thraldom of sin, which, as Augustine says, ought to be done in such a way that the devil be overcome by the justice of that man, Jesus Christ. And this was done by Christ satisfying for us and atoning for sin. Now, a mere man could not have satisfied for the whole human race, and God was not bound to satisfy. Hence, it behooved Jesus Christ to be both God and man. As Pope Leo the Great says, unless he was God, he could not have brought a remedy, and unless he was man, he would not have set an example. Now, I would just briefly note two reasons that Aquinas gives why we cannot of ourselves completely atone for sin. First, the wounds of original sin are in our human nature itself, and we do not have the power to overcome these wounds without the grace of God that comes to us from Christ. Second, a sin committed against God, who is infinite, takes on a kind of infinity, but we ourselves are simply finite. So only one who is both God and man can make satisfaction or atonement with that infinite efficacy needed to overcome and atone for sin. So that is where I will leave the second question on why the Word became incarnate. Let us move on to the third question that we have already touched upon, which is, how can we best understand what the Scriptures mean when it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? There are two major pitfalls or ancient heresies of the Church that we want to avoid here. The first is called monophysitism. And the second pitfall at the opposite extreme is Nestorianism. Monophysitism stems from two Greek words, monos, meaning solitary or only one, and phusis, meaning nature. So it refers to this um, erroneous idea of Christ having only one nature after the Incarnation such that either one of the two natures is swallowed up by the other, the human nature is swallowed up by the divine or vice versa, or the two natures were sometimes thought in some way to fuse together into one, forming what is called a tertium quid, a third something that was neither fully human nor fully divine, but a kind of mix or hybrid of both. But that is a heresy of monophysitism that is not what the Church teaches regarding Christ. The second heresy, Nestorianism, 
sought to separate the two natures so much as to divide the subject of these natures into two subjects, or in some cases, two persons. Um, and this is, in other words, would be one human person and one divine person. Nestorius himself famously refused to acknowledge Mary as the Theotokos, the Greek word meaning God-bearer, because he said that Mary was the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God. We sometimes may hear a similar argument even today by those who, although they profess belief in the divinity of Christ, still want to say that since Mary was the mother of Jesus' humanity, we ought not to give her the title Mother of God. In responding to this sort of argument, both the original Nestorian one and the modern-day version, it is important always to keep in mind that Jesus is one person not two, and that he is a divine person, not a human person per se, although he has a complete human nature. But his personhood is properly a divine one, because his very being is divine. Now, I would like to just quote from a council, a very important council of the early church, the Council of Chalcedon, a major universal council of the church that took place in 451 AD and which formally declared the distinction of the divine and human natures in the one divine person of Christ to be a matter of faith. This is called, in fact, by the council, the definition of faith drawn up by the council fathers. And this will be found later on the website, um, so you can look it up yourself. But this is what they say. Following the saintly fathers, we, that is the Council of Bishops, united together under the Pope, all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary the virgin God-bearer. Here they are purposely giving her the title in Greek of Theotokos, or the, the bearer of God, the mother of God, that Nestorius had rejected. So she, they're saying she's the God-bearer as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo, and here is the key phrase, no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. Now let me pause a moment to interpret this. They say no confusion. This is denying the theory of the tertium quid or a third nature that was a kind of thought to be a hybrid of the human and divine. Also, they say no change. In other words, no loss or change to his divinity in becoming man, nor a strange kind of human nature 
that that somehow would be lacking a human soul or intellect swallowed up by the divinity. These things are said then against the heresy of monophysitism or other similar heresies. And then the phrases, no division, no separation, the Council of Chalcedon declares against Nestorianism, as they will now explain. They say, at no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, so here's the emphasis against Nestorianism, but he is one and the same, only begotten Son, God, Word, here they're in a sense canonizing the term used by scripture, the analogy of the word, Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us, since we have formulated these things with all possible accuracy and attention, the sacred and universal synod decreed that no one is permitted to produce or even to write down or compose any other creed or think or teach otherwise. So it's very strong language from the Council of Chalcedon. It's a very important aspect of our faith. But how does this union of the divine and human natures take place? Nestorius thought it was simply an accidental union, such as the union of a very holy person with God, who dwells in the holy person as in a temple, as St. Paul writes. But that would mean that Jesus was simply a very holy man, perhaps even the holiest of men. But this is very far from being God himself. In other words, as the Dominican Thomist Thomas Joseph White notes in his book, and the light of Christ, in Jesus, God subsists personally as a human being. By contrast, our union with God takes place primarily through human operations or actions. By the working of grace, we can come to know God and to love him so as to be united with him by our human actions. But the distinction is important because it allows us to see clearly the true locus or place of the incarnation that is particular to Christ. It does not take place in the human consciousness of Jesus or in his human operations of obedience. It takes place in the very substance of Christ's person. This is to say, not, not to say that Christ did not also have grace in his human soul, or that he did not also perform human operations of knowing, loving, and obeying God. He did do that as man. But this is not what we mean when speaking of the hypostatic union that takes place in Christ in the incarnation. So after the break, we will return to discuss more about what this hypostatic union entails in Christ. Thank you very much. We're going to listen to Praise to Christ the Lord Incarnate by Graham Kendrick. While we try and digest all of that, I hope you enjoy this lovely song. He it is who came among us, shared our life and showed our worth. 
As the turmoil he encountered, as the fight he made his own. Now within our hearts his spirit makes his way of freedom known. Praise to Christ our Savior and our
That was Graham Kendrick. Praise to Christ the Lord incarnate. It's a lovely song. We have a caller, uh, Sister Magdalene, and I'll put you on air. I think I know who this lady is. Hold on one moment. Hello, you're through to Sister Magdalene. Oh, thank you, Lucia. Hello, Sister Magdalene. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to what you've been talking about, and it's it's taken a lot of concentration. And yeah. uh, I think I've I think I've understood it. And what I mean to say next, I don't I don't intend to contradict anything that you've said so far, but it's something that I've wondered about. Um, so I when I was contemplating the um, incarnation recently, I was thinking that it is as profound as the beginning of the universe. You know, it's that kind of event, God coming into oh, yeah. human history. Yeah. And and in some ways, I was as I was contemplating it, I was amazed at a sense of knowing that God is unchanged by the incarnation. And I can't find the language for it. And I think maybe it falls into something that is mystery and, and less accessible by logic. But that somehow in God becoming human, he didn't lose anything, but in that act of absolute love and emptying himself to be with us, he experienced what it is to be human in a way that God out of time can't. Um, and I just wondered about that. that so I, I understand God wasn't change and doesn't change. And yet something about becoming human, a human being and entering into history as a person, expanded God in some way or expanded his experience or love of us in some way that is profound and I'm in awe of. Right. Well, thank you very much for, for your question or, and comment there. Um, yes, I know it it is a great mystery, isn't it? Um, it's similar to the incarnation or, or to the creation is a mystery, um, you know, God creating without himself changing and and I think, so So you're right. I mean, when God created the human nature of Christ for himself, you know, that that is, it, I mean, it's like, it is a, re, a recreation in a sense, also for us in grace when he gives it to us. Um, so how do we, can we understand this? Well, what Aquinas says is that God in his divine nature is unchangeable because he's, I mean, he's, he's completely perfect. Um uh, and yet, and his complete love and, and perfection. So he doesn't need creatures in that sense. And yet, when he he does uh, lower himself in this, um, as we see in Philippians 2, by, um, by creating a human nature and uniting it to himself. So it's called the, you could say, a divine condescension, condescension, mm -hmm. <laughs> condescension um, in that he uh, he humbles himself by becoming man, but but the but the change is in the the creature. So by creating the nature um, and uniting him to to himself, um, because God of course holds all things in being. Um, you know, he, in in creation, that's the first. When I mentioned the modes of divine presence, the first mode of divine presence, God holding everything in being and creating everything, uh, and giving everything the power to act. 
uh, the second mode of divine presence, God being present in the soul by grace. But this third mode um, in which God unites a human nature to himself, uh, unique to Christ. And, and of course, as man, Christ is able to, uh, uh, as I, uh, within this hypostatic union, um, he has a human intellect, a human will, human acts, operations, human emotions. Um, but uh, And then if he also, uh, in the hypostatic union, has a divine intellect and uh, divine will. Um, they're completely united in the one substance, the one divine person of Christ. But um, without... Um, without God himself being changed, right? Um, so it, it is a mystery, and yet um, uh, it, 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 um, if, we, if we look, um, I think maybe what, what I'm, one other thing I, I was just going to, to, to talk about is um, a letter uh, also read at this Council of Chalcedon that I think helps us to understand a little bit more about what, what what the mystery, even though it is a mystery, remains a mystery. There's a letter of Pope Leo the First to Flavian called the Tome of Leo. Um, so, if it's all right with you, I might go ahead and um, and kind of read parts of this um, that that might. Um, I look help forward to hearing more. Thank you. Okay. Thank Thanks you very much. All right. So, so here's the. Um, because, because one of the questions um, in this hypostatic union, right, is um, how do we rightly speak of of Christ's actions, right? Um, how do we how do we understand, uh, for example, his miracles of healing the blind man, um, at, or can we say, for example, that the baby in Bethlehem is giving being to the world, or that God was crucified and died on the cross? And in a way, we can truly say these things, but we have to understand. Um, we use what is called the communication of idioms or the communication of properties, right? Because Christ has two human natures, but they both refer back to the one divine person. So this letter of Pope Leo I to a bishop called Flavian um, was written because, um, and, and what he says here um, is that the proper proper character of both natures was maintained and came together in a single person. Lowliness was taken up by majesty, weakness by strength, mortality by eternity. To pay off the debt of our state, invulnerable nature, that is the divine one, was united to a nature that could suffer, the human one. So that in a way that corresponded to the remedies we needed, one and the same mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, could both on the one hand die in his human nature and on the other be incapable of death in his divine nature. Thus was true God born in the undiminished and perfect nature of true man, complete in what is his, that is as God, and also complete in what is ours, in his human nature. His subjection to human weaknesses in common with us did not mean, of course, that he shared our sins. He took on the form of a servant, that is, in his human nature, without the defilement of sin, thereby enhancing the human and not diminishing the divine. So the one who retained the form of God, right, his divine nature, when he made humanity, that in, in creation, was made man 
in the form of a servant in his human nature. So each nature, the Pope says, kept its proper character without loss. And just as the form of God, the divine nature, does not take away the form of a servant, it, so the form of a servant, his human nature, does not detract from the form of God, the divine one. So what all this entails in this communication of properties or idioms is, he says, that the activity of each form is what is proper to it in communion with the other. The word, that is the word of God, God performs what belongs to the word, and flesh, his human nature, accomplishes what belongs to the flesh. One of these performs brilliant miracles. The other sustains acts of violence, right? So when, I should just say, when Christ heals the leper, he touches him with a human hand, but he heals him by his divine power. So he's working, both natures are, are acting, doing what is proper to each, right? He, he touched with a hand that's human, not divine, of the hand itself, you know, is a bo human body, and yet um, the power is divine. So as Pope Leo says, um, as the word does not lose its glory, which is equal to that of the Father, so neither does the flesh leave the nature of its kind behind. We must say this again and again, one and the same is truly son of God and truly son of man. God, by the fact that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, here he's quoting from the first verse of the Gospel of John, man by the fact that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, also from that first chapter of John. I, great to meditate on. God by the fact that all things were made through him and nothing was made without him. Man by the fact that he was made born of a woman, born under the law. The birth of a flesh of the flesh reveals human nature. Birth from a virgin is proof of his divine power. So, so here we have these the properties of each nature remaining distinct and yet united in the one person of Christ. So Christ did not suffer in his divinity because the divine nature cannot suffer, but he is a divine person and suffered in his human nature, which can suffer. So as divine, he does not suffer, but as man, he did suffer and die. And yet the human nature that suffered is truly the human nature of God, of one who is God. In the same way, when we say that baby of Bethlehem, Christ himself is the baby in his human nature, but he's holding up the world because he's a divine person. Rather, So it's not that his human nature becomes omnipotent somehow, but rather that he's omnipotent because he's God, and yet he's also that baby in Bethlehem. So he's both human and divine. So it's important we remain maintain the distinction while understanding that both now are the one person of Christ. So the quickly, our last question then, how does the fact that the word became flesh really affect us anyway? It's important to note that at the moment of the incarnation, not only is the human nature assumed into the hypostatic union of the person of God, the Son, but also the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Son is active in conforming Christ's human soul to himself in charity and the gift of habitual grace. And this grace comes to us through Christ. We receive it as John 1.16 teaches us, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Christ as man shares his grace with us. So he is called head of the church. All right. And so so the, this um, we can we can con- consider that again as the Council of Chalcedon teaches, there's no confusion, no change, no division, no separation of these two natures in the union. And it is this God-man whom we contemplate as the baby born in Bethlehem. It is this God-man who died for us on the cross of Calvary in order to atone for our sins and unite us to God by grace. It is this God-man who rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven. It is this God-man whom we receive at every Mass in every Holy Communion. And it is this God-man who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, we hope to lovingly contemplate forever in the eternity of the glory of heaven. God so loved the world that he sent his only Son in a divine mission to the world, in order that we might not perish, but might have eternal life. His mission was made visible in the Incarnation, and this visible mission continues to point to the invisible divine mission that continues in each soul that receives him in grace and in receiving the word of God is conformed to him in wisdom and grace, making us adopted sons and children of God in God the Son. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sister Magdalene. That was um that was a really excellent talk, um, and I've taken quite a lot of what you said uh, into my heart, actually. And um, thank you to Aileen for, for calling in. And um, yes, if any of our listeners would like, Sister Magdalene's very kindly offered a, um, a handout to go with this talk. Um, so if you are interested, would like to to have that, please just let us know. Sister Madeline, thank you so much for offering up your time today for this wonderful talk. And um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. And I know that our listeners have as well. And I hope that you do come back again. All right. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And God bless you. God bless you too.